In last week's sermon, we met a character named Haman the Agagite. Haman was an official in the court of Ahasuerus, the great king of the Persian Empire. We also met a Jewish man named Mordecai. He's the surrogate father of Esther, and he disobeyed the king's command. He refused to bow before Haman when the king had ordered that. Enraged, Haman forms a plot. He told King Ahasuerus that there was a certain group of people in the empire who were violating his law, and they should be wiped out. Now the king, wanting to keep control of his kingdom, of course, gave Haman authority to carry out his request, not knowing that Haman was targeting Mordecai and Mordecai's people, the Jews. Neither of them knew that this would also target Queen Esther, for Mordecai had told her to keep her Jewishness a secret. Now, upon hearing of this plot and on Mordecai's advice, Esther decides that she will risk her life. She will go before the king and entreat mercy for the Jews. In preparation for this dangerous mission, Esther calls Mordecai and all the Jews in the city of Susa to hold a three-day fast, praying to God to deliver them from destruction. So as we return to this story, let us pray as well. Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign Lord. You move kings and empires at your will. Would you send your spirit and open our hearts to receive your word this morning? Do not let our pride and our selfish ways blind us to what you are doing in our midst. Grant us your favor through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of Susa have been fasting for three days. The dead do not eat, and this fasting ritual is a way to symbolically enter into death, to proclaim that you will be dead if the God of life does not act to deliver you. But the third day is the middle of the week. It is the day of change and of transformation. It is the day of rising from death. And so Esther rises on the third day, now, it's been about five years, maybe, or more, since Esther was first brought to the king's harem. Back then, we saw her cleansed and anointed with oil and myrrh in preparation for entering the palace. We said that, like the priests of Israel, she was consecrated to enter God's holy temple. Esther is richly prepared to enter the king's palace. Here in chapter 5, Esther is going to make that ascent once more. But it's a dangerous journey. The priests of Israel would be killed if they entered into the Holy of Holies without following God's instructions. In the same way, in Persia, anyone who goes to the king in his inner court without being called, they will be put to death. If the king does not hold out his golden scepter to spare them, they will die. And Esther knows this. Everyone in the kingdom knows this. And yet, brave Queen Esther says, If I perish, I perish. I must go and plead the king's mercy for my people. And so as a priest prepares to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, so Esther is prepared to offer herself as a living sacrifice to save her people. And chapter 5 tells us, On the third day, 
Esther put on her royal robes and ascended to the king's inner court. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside his throne room. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, verse 2 tells us, that she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now we've also said that the great king Ahasuerus is a picture of the sovereign God of Israel. His bride has violated his law. She is good as dead in her sin. But the king looks on her with love, and he does not give her the penalty she deserves. Instead, what does the text say? He gives her favor. He gives her grace. That's what grace means. Favor and grace, these are not things you earn or merit or deserve. They are things God freely gives. He is a gracious God. He delights to bestow grace and honor on his people. Verse 3, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. The great king is also a generous king. He delights to share his rule with his bride. But we are surprised when Esther does not say anything to him about the Jews, nor about Haman's decree, which threatens to destroy him. Instead, Esther answers the king, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And we are surprised again when at the feast, the king asks Esther what she wants once again, and she replies by inviting he and Haman to a second feast, the next day. Now to us it may seem that Esther is hesitant maybe or, or even afraid to speak her request, that she is stalling by doing this. But in the ancient Near East this was common practice when you're presenting a request to an authority figure. You start by asking for a small favor and then you work your way up to what you really want. And so this actually shows us Esther's shrewdness, her wisdom. She understands the difficulty of the situation, the tact it requires. The king has made this decree. If he just undoes it, that makes him look weak. But she also knows that she hasn't told him everything about who she is. So there are a lot of complicating factors here. And Esther is approaching the situation with wisdom and shrewdness. She understands the reality of the situation, the reality of who the king is. The reality of who she is in relation to him. And so she shows him the proper honor and respect. And she humbles herself to serve her king before asking him to serve her. And so what does this double feast show us? It is a double witness to the king and to Haman that Esther is a faithful and humble bride who delights to honor the king. Now, this is an example that Haman would do well to learn from. But that doesn't seem to be the lesson he takes from these feasts, as we will see in just a moment. Verse 9 tells us, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Mordecai still refuses to honor Haman in the way the king had commanded. We're not told why, what his motivations are. Uh, probably Haman's plot to decimate the Jews made Mordecai hate him all the more. But the text is more concerned with Haman's reaction and his motivations here. It tells us he was filled with wrath because Mordecai would not bow or tremble before him. Verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So Haman goes on to this long speech praising Haman. Now recall that at the beginning of Esther, it was King Ahasuerus who was displaying his glory for the whole empire to see. And this is a fitting thing for the king to do, for the great king and the leader of Persia. But here, Haman seems to be doing the same thing, displaying his glory. Haman thinks he's a king as well, and we'll see this more as we go on. Verse 12, Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Now we know why Esther invited Haman to the feast, but notice how he interprets it, how he takes it. What did these two feasts impress upon Haman's mind? Did he walk away from them marveling at Esther's humility and at her wisdom? Was he humbled to be included in this intimate meal with the king and his bride? This is basically the king's family dinner table, right? Haman's included. Was he humbled by that? No. For Haman, these feasts were not evidence of Esther's glory or even of the king's glory. For Haman, these feasts manifested his own glory. They only served to confirm what he already believed. Haman, you're spectacular. You're on the same level as the great king and his glorious bride. Now, delusional though he may be, Haman can't even enjoy this moment of pride. Why? Because verse 13, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Joy is hard to come by in this fallen world. But we have so much to be grateful for. We have unrivaled peace and prosperity in our nation. But don't you find it surprising that we can ride that tide of joy for, for maybe a few hours at most? Yet the slightest disappointment can ruin the whole day, the whole week, the whole year. Why is it that joy seems impossible to hang on to, but sorrow so easily overwhelms us? Look at Haman. He's second to the king. The whole city bows before him. He dines in the royal palace. He has more money than he knows what to do with. He has sons to carry on his name. And things at work are going splendidly. He's had promotion after promotion after promotion. But that one guy who doesn't cower before Haman's glory, that ruins it all for him. Now, it's ridiculous, isn't it? 
it's maybe overstated for the effect of the story. You see that, I see that, but why do we do the same thing? One family member doesn't do what we ask. One Facebook friend voices the wrong opinion. One employer overlooks something that we work so hard on. One parishioner levels a veiled critique at our ministry. We've been handed the kingdom, but one little critique, one little conflict can spoil it all for us. Now, do we stop ourselves? Do we recognize that when it's happening? Do we humble ourselves and pray, seeking to turn our hope from the false idols of this world toward the riches of the kingdom of God? Esther seems to be able to do that. But Haman doesn't. He goes crying to his wife and friends about that blasted Mordecai. They prove to be bad counselors. Look at verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, most archaeologists say that it's, it's not a gallows that's in view here, but a pike, a large spike or um, a tree, a platform of some kind. That was the common method of displaying defeated enemies in uh, the Persian Empire. Impale them on a wooden pike, display for all to see and to fear your power and your might. It's not unlike the later Roman practice of crucifixion. Fifty cubits uh, would be 75 feet, which is enormous. And it may include the height of the hill or the structure on which this pike was to be set, but that great height is certainly intended for dramatic effect and to ensure that everyone in Susa would see what happens to those who disrespect the king's right-hand man, Haman. Now, as we move to chapter 6, we learn that while Haman is up late building this huge pike, the king is having trouble going to sleep. And like many of us, he thinks maybe an audiobook will help him sleep. So chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Literally, it is a book of memorial, a book of memorial. And you know I can't pass up an opportunity to talk about memorials in the Bible. How do memorials function in Scripture? What do they usually do? Yes, they are objects that remind us of something that God has done in the past. You think of the rainbow, you think of the stack of stones in the Jordan River. But we've also talked about how memorials are meant to remind God it's not that God actually forgets things, but these memorials act as a kind of prayer to God, a prayer calling him to remember, to act according to the promises that he has made in the past. Call him to deliver once again as he has in the past. Now every week we say that this bread and this cup are a memorial. Do this as my memorial. We show God the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, and we call God to continue to save and deliver us as he promised to do by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So look at this book of memorial here in Esther 6. Does it remind the great king of his covenant obligations? Does it move him to act on behalf of his people? Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You'll recall that Mordecai had exposed this assassination plot to the king back in chapter 2 and saved the king's life. Verse 3, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but we see his involvement in the events of Esther right here, don't we? You see how it just so happens that in this moment when Mordecai and the Jews are under threat, that's when the king reads this story, this story that will favorably dispose him toward Mordecai and Mordecai's people. Now notice also that Mordecai did not receive the just reward for his actions at the time he performed them. He had to wait. He had to trust that the great king would eventually do what was right. And this is the same way for us. We often have to do the righteous thing in the moment, knowing that we will not see our reward this side of the resurrection. We are to trust that the great king rewards his servants in his timing, that he is a gracious king, that he delights to show favor and honor to those who humbly serve him. So nothing has been done to reward Mordecai, and the king intends to remedy this. And the wise king always seeks counsel, and so he asks, which of his advisors, which of my advisors are here in the palace that I can confer with? And it just so happens that Haman has just arrived, hoping to speak to the king about having Mordecai impaled on his pike. But before he can even mention it, the king asks Haman, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? Again, the great king delights to honor faithful servants. He is a generous king. He finds joy in raising others up. And so again, we see that Ahasuerus is like God in this. God delights to raise up, to redeem, and to restore, and then shower us with honor, though we are only poor, unworthy servants. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? The king delights to honor his servants, but Haman delights to honor Haman. Now notice that it is his own pride at work here. He doesn't even consider that there might be other people in the world. Other people the king might wish to honor. All Haman can see is himself. And that blinds him to the reality of the situation. It blinds him to other people. What's interesting is that, though it is true that Haman only sees himself, the problem is that he doesn't actually see himself rightly. <laughs> he only looks at himself, but he can't see himself rightly. He only sees himself as worthy of honor. He doesn't see his failings. He doesn't see how his hatred of Mordecai and of Mordecai's people is sinful and wicked. 
He only sees himself, and he only sees himself in the best light possible. Do you ever have to deal with people who only see themselves, but they still can't see themselves rightly? It's amazing how they're able to spot the speck in everyone else's eye despite the log in theirs. And sadly, it's very difficult to have a healthy relationship with people like that because they will never admit to the damage they are contributing to the relationship. It's always someone else's fault. The other person is always the problem, and they never do anything wrong. Now, thank God none of us here are ever like that, right? God help us. We can all be more like Haman than Ahasuerus. We all tend to put ourselves first and expect others to honor and respect us when we should instead be delighting to honor others as Christ has honored us. And so Haman is blind to the reality of the situation because he can only see himself. Verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Again, Haman thinks the king is talking about him. So what does this reveal about him? Who does he want to be? Who does he think he is? If it looks like a king and it walks like a king and it quacks like a king, wait, it must be a king, right? Haman wants to be king, probably thinks he should be king, probably thinks he could do it a sight better than Ahasuerus, who is a little too free-handed with his subjects, when what's really needed is a good 75-foot pike now and then. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. If you listen carefully, you can still hear the sound of Haman's jaw slapping the marble floor of that palace 2,500 years ago. What can he do? The king has commanded it. He's the big stickler for obeying the king's commands. And he knows that to disobey means death. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Now, can you imagine anything more humiliating for uh, Haman? Remember, he just came from his house where he and his buddies were celebrating how they would display Mordecai's impaled corpse for all of Susa to see. But now, Haman is putting Mordecai on display for all Susa to see, but Mordecai is very much alive. And he's dressed as though he were the king. And Haman is his lowly stable boy. And so once this whole degrading affair is over, Haman runs home in mourning, his face shrouded in shame. What brought Haman to such a pit of despair? He only had eyes for Haman. He thought he alone was worthy of the king's honor and his self-obsession blinded to him to all the other persons and all other possibilities. 
And so how would he respond? How would you or I respond if we were humiliated in this way? Now he could repent. The text says he was mourning. He could have mourned his own sin. He could have seen himself rightly as one in need of the king's grace rather than one owed the king's honor. The text says he covered his head. He could have covered his head in ashes. Mordecai did that in the previous chapter. A sign of repentance, a sign of pleading for mercy that he might not reap the deathly reward of his sin. But I don't think Haman is mourning over his sin, do you? I don't think Haman is covering his head in repentance, do you? Haman doesn't seem capable of recognizing his own sin. It's always someone else's fault. And even though this whole horse and pony show was all Haman's idea, he's going to see the event as yet another way that Mordecai has humiliated him. Mordecai did this. Verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now that's an odd statement. These same folks who counseled Haman to set up a pike for Mordecai earlier in the chapter now warn Haman that he will fall before Mordecai. Perhaps even the foolish counselors are starting to see the reality of the situation that Haman has been blind to this whole time. And they predict a great reversal. They predict a great reversal. Haman was seeking to humble Mordecai and exalt himself. But now he has been humbled and Mordecai has been exalted. The reality is the exact opposite of what Haman thought it was. And even his friends see it. Will Haman see it before it's too late? Maybe he should be content with all the honor the king has already given him. Maybe he should change his attitude toward Mordecai. Maybe he has time to go tear down that pike before the king finds out what he was planning to do to the man who saved the king's life. But at that moment, verse 14 tells us, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now we'll have to see what happens to Haman uh, next Sunday. But let's take a step back for a moment and try to gain some wisdom from these two chapters of Esther. There are two ways of life set before us here. Which will you pursue and how will you pursue it? The way of Haman is the way of eyes fixed solely on self and yet not able to see self rightly because our pride has blinded us. We take for granted all the gifts and honor that have been bestowed upon us because we don't see them as gifts. We see them as things we deserve, things we are owed, our rights. And because we see them this way, we are never content. Because it only takes one Mordecai, one small critique, one minor conflict to set us off. The person makes some critical comment, makes one choice we disagree with, does one small thing that hits us the wrong way, and that small critique or conflict threatens our pride, which is the thing we hold most dear. So that small critique or conflict, it's quickly blown out of proportion to the point that it overwhelms everything else 
in our lives. As Mordecai blotted out all that was good in Haman's life, that perceived threat becomes all we think about day and night, all we talk about, all we see. It's always right there. And so we think eliminating that annoyance, that person, that quickly becomes our obsession. Maybe not with a 75-foot pike, but through passive-aggressive comments, through disregard and disrespect, through avoiding that person, through hating that person who threatens the little kingdom we have built and the throne on which we place ourselves. But these are people made in God's image. These are people the king delights to honor with his grace. And so this way of Haman prevents us from seeing and repenting of our own sin. It makes us hate our brother or sister and murder them in our hearts. And therefore, though we pursue this way in order to exalt ourselves, to raise us up, this way actually leads to our downfall and our destruction. There's also the way of Esther and the way of the great king. Instead of our eyes fixed on ourselves, the eyes of Esther and of the great king are fixed on others. In fact, Esther's eyes are so fixed on others that she is willing to give her life to save them. And the great king, too, he sees Esther and delights to give her half his kingdom. In his sleepless night, he hears of Mordecai and racks his brain to find the best way to honor him. They see others rightly. They see others as people worthy of their honor, people worthy of their respect. And consequently, they see themselves rightly as well. Though they are glorious in their royalty and their authority, Queen Esther, King Ahasuerus, Though they are glorious, they humble themselves as servants. They give themselves to raise others up. How is it possible for us to turn from the way of Haman and follow in the footsteps of Queen Esther and of the great king only because the greater Esther and the true great king has already bestowed his grace and favor upon us. In Jesus Christ, we see the greatest example of this. Why? For Jesus Christ was the great King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but instead he poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming an obedient servant. Obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. On a pike. He offered himself up as the greater Esther. A living sacrifice to save the people of God. And because he humbled himself in this way, the Father has raised him from the dead and highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus none will refuse to bow. No tongue can refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus is the golden scepter. Jesus is the golden scepter. And God, the great king, has seen you even in your sin, even though you rightly deserve death, as we all do. God has seen you, and he has reached out the golden scepter of his son for you to touch by faith, that you might receive mercy, that you might live. And that's what we call favor. That's what we call grace. God, the great king, looks on you and he smiles and he says, it shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. I will raise you up. You will reign at my side. You are united by faith to my beloved son. By honoring you, I honor him. Thus, you are the man. You are the woman who the king delights to honor. Brothers and sisters, because God has thus honored us through his son Jesus, we can go and show such honor to all who are made in his image. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, great king of creation, you humble those who exalt themselves. You delight to exalt those who humble themselves. Keep us from pride, which blinds us to our sin, which blinds us to the gifts you have given, which blinds us to other people made in your image. Humble us, bring us to repentance, that we might give ourselves for others and give ourselves fully to you. Make us trust that you will raise us up at the proper time and bring us into our eternal reward, which you have prepared for us in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.